So we'll begin our readings in the Law of Moses in Leviticus chapter 5. Leviticus 5, we'll read verses 1 through 6. If anyone sins in that he hears a public adjuration to testify, and though he is a witness, whether he has seen or come to know the matter, yet he does not speak, he shall bear his iniquity. Or if anyone touches an unclean thing, whether a carcass of an unclean wild animal, or a carcass of unclean livestock, or a carcass of unclean swarming things, and it is hidden from him, and he has become unclean, and he realizes his guilt, or if he touches human uncleanness, of whatever sort the uncleanness may be, with which one becomes unclean, and, if it, is, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it and realizes his guilt, or if anyone utters with his lips a rash oath to do evil, or to do good, any sort of rash oath that people swear, and it is hidden from him, when he comes to know it, and he realizes his guilt in any of these, when he realizes his guilt in any of these and confesses the sin he has committed, he shall bring to the Lord, as his compensation for the sin that he has committed, a female from the flock, a lamb or a goat, for a sin offering. And the priest shall make atonement for him for his sin. So far from Leviticus, uh, we'll, or from Leviticus 5, then we'll turn to chapter 19. And there we're going to read verses 1 through 12. <clears throat> And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to all the congregation of the people of Israel, and say to them, You shall be holy, for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Every one of you shall revere his mother and his father, and you shall keep my Sabbaths. I am the Lord your God. Do not turn to idols or make for yourselves any gods of cast metal. I am the Lord your God. When you offer a sacrifice of peace offerings to the Lord, you shall offer it so that you may be accepted. It shall be eaten on the same day you offer it, or on the day after, and anything left over until the third day shall be burned up with fire. If it is eaten at all on the third day, it is tainted, it will not be accepted, and everyone who eats it shall bear his iniquity, because he has profaned what is holy to the Lord, and that person shall be cut off from his people. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, neither shall you, glean, shall you gather the gleanings after your harvest. And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal. You shall not deal falsely. You shall not lie to one another. You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. So far from Leviticus, then we'll turn to the New Testament to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew 5, verses 33 through 37. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, 
either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. Then we'll also turn to the end of uh, Matthew, to Matthew 23, towards the end, verses 16 through 22. Matthew 23, verse 16. Again, the words of the Lord Jesus. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, if anyone swears by the temple, it is nothing. But if he swears by the gold of the temple, he is bound by his oath. You blind fools, for which is greater, the gold or the temple that has made the gold sacred? And if you say, if anyone swears by the altar, it is nothing. But if anyone swears by the gift that is on the altar, he is bound by his oath. You blind men, for which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? So whoever swears by by the altar, swears by it and everything on it. And whoever swears by the temple, swears by it and by him who dwells in it. And whoever swears by heaven, swears by the throne of God and by him who sits upon it. So far, the reading of God's Word. Every Lord's Day in the afternoon service, we turn to the Heidelberg Catechism, the doctrine of this church and a summary of the Christian faith. And we find ourselves in Lord's Day uh, 36, that's on page 553 of your books of praise if you wish to follow along. Lord's Day 36, there the question is asked, what is required in the third commandment? We are not to blaspheme or to abuse the name of God by cursing, perjury, or unnecessary oaths, nor to share in such horrible sins by being silent bystanders. Rather, we must use the holy name of God only with fear and reverence, so that we may rightly confess Him, call upon Him, and praise Him in all our words and works. Is the blaspheming of God's name by swearing and cursing such a grievous sin that God is angry also with those who do not prevent and forbid it as much as they can? Certainly, for no sin is greater or provokes God's wrath more than the blaspheming of His name. That is why He commanded it to be punished with death. But may we swear an oath by the name of God in a godly manner. Yes, when the government demands it of its subjects, or when necessity requires it, in order to maintain and promote fidelity and truth to God's glory and for our neighbor's good. Such oath-taking is based on God's word, and was therefore rightly used by saints in the Old and the New Testament. May we also swear by saints or other creatures. No, a lawful oath is calling upon God, who alone knows the heart, to bear witness to the truth and to punish me if I swear falsely. No creature is worthy of such honor. So far the reading of the Catechism. Brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, as we continue uh, our journey through the Ten Commandments, uh, we want to do, do this keeping in mind the, the big theme that governs the whole of the Ten Commandments, uh, as we've mentioned before, that God has set us free in order for us to live as a free people. This is why the, the law is often spoken of as the law of liberty. 
Uh, it is not meant to restrict, to repress. It is meant for us to be free. Now we see this, and we saw this before in, in the story of Israel. As Israel is rescued from Egypt, we realize they were rescued from a lot more than just their physical slavery. They were rescued from a whole system of religion, a, a whole world in which they lived, in which they were slaves, both physically and spiritually, uh, enslaved to false gods and enslaved to lies. Uh, and so God's purpose for us is, is to be a free people, uh, to, to be the people that God created us to be in relationship with Him, doing His will, uh, living lives that are beautiful and glorious uh, for, for the glory of His name. Having said that, then we come to the third commandment. And perhaps the first thing that we should take note of here in the third commandment is, is that this commandment stands out from the others in the Ten Commandments in that it comes with a very strong warning. It comes attached with a, a sharp warning, uh, which, which at least means that this is something that God wants us to pay particular attention to. This is not a commandment to brush over, to think this is a thing of, uh, of, of former days. Maybe this belonged to the life of Israel and we might easily uh, forget it for ourselves. No, the warning is, is there. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In other words, listen to this. There's something serious here. Uh, so the third commandment is, you shall not then take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Uh, so what we want to think about this afternoon then is, uh, first of all, what does this commandment mean? What does it mean to take the name of God in vain? What's actually being prohibited here? Uh, and then also, uh, what underlying principles are here that God would have us take to heart so that we can also see the positive side to this commandment? If God is forbidding one thing, He is commanding something else. Now, the word vain, you shall not take the name of God in vain. The word vain just means empty. We've actually seen this word in our study of Ecclesiastes. Uh, and so the point is, you shall not use the name of God in a way that is empty, in a way that is void of meaning, uh, or in other words, a way that is without sincerity. It's, it's throwing the name of God around. It's treating the name of God lightly uh, as something that means very little or nothing to you. Uh, there's a number of ways in which that, that might happen, that someone might use the name of God in vain. Uh, but when you read this issue, especially in light of the law of Moses, the, the abuse that seems to stand out primarily in the law of Moses uh, is, is swearing false oaths in God's name. We saw that in Leviticus 5. We saw it again in Leviticus 19. The issue is swearing in God's name falsely. Now, that does not mean that all swearing in God's name is wrong. We saw that as well in the Catechism. It's not automatically a bad thing to swear in God's name. Uh, in fact, on the whole in Scripture, it is presented as a good thing. Uh, listen just to some of these Scriptures. Deuteronomy 6, verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. Or again, Deuteronomy 10, 20. You shall fear the Lord your God. You shall serve Him and hold fast to Him, and by His name you shall swear. It's there in the Psalms as well. Psalm 63, verse 11, The king shall rejoice in God. All who swear by Him shall exalt. It's there in the prophets. Uh, Isaiah 65, 16, He who blesses himself in the land shall bless himself by the God of truth, and he who takes an oath in the land shall swear by the God of truth. 
Or Jeremiah 4.2, If you swear as the Lord lives in truth, in justice, and in righteousness, then the nations shall bless themselves in Him, and in Him they shall glory. So you see this really throughout the Old Testament. Uh, it is presented as a good thing for God's people to swear in God's name in the right context, provided it is also done, as, as Jeremiah says, in truth, in righteousness, and justice. It's not abusing God's name, it's using it with the honor and reverence it deserves. Now the reason that God commanded the people to swear by His name and no other name uh, is because the thing on which we swear, uh, whether we we might be accustomed, as some people are, to swear on the Bible or or even some to swear on their mother's grave or other things people decide they're going to swear upon, uh, the thing on which we we base our oaths is, is that which is most holy to us, most precious to us, that which we would least desire to be dishonored. It's a silly thing to swear on your mother's grave, but that's why such a thing uh, has, has come up. It's, that's the thing for some people that matters to them more than anything else. That's the one thing that's holy in their world. Uh, and we've seen this in the last two commandments then. God has been insisting that nothing be more holy to us than His own name. That was the first commandment, right? You, you shall have no other God's before me. It's the second commandment. You shall worship God as God has commanded. Um, God alone is worthy of such honor. And so God commands the people, if you're going to swear, swear by the name of God. Nothing else deserves that kind of honor. However, if we do swear by God's name, then that is something that we are taught to regard with the utmost seriousness because God's name is sacred. Uh, to swear by His name uh, and then to break that promise, uh, or, or uh, if it's not a promise, if it's a statement of truth, to swear by His name but be speaking a lie, uh, it, in either case, is to treat God's name as unholy. It's to treat God's name as if it is meaningless to you. It is vain. Uh, so the commandment uh, has in mind here then particularly this swearing of oaths. Now you hear this in Leviticus, which is, especially Leviticus 19, it's sort of, you can, you can see the structure in Leviticus, it's a long, a long form version of the Ten Commandments, expounding on the different commandments. Uh, and there it clearly says with regards to this one, you shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord." Now that word profane, it's an important word. Uh, we, we hear the word or, or derivatives of it commonly in our, in our society. The word profanity, you hear that word uh, used in contemporary English. In contemporary English, it typically just means bad language. That's what we mean when we speak of profanity, uh, cuss words, that sort of thing. Uh, but the, the word profane, it actually has a, uh, an important meaning. It means something more specific. It comes from the old Latin, which is uh, profanus, um, and it means taken out of the temple, is what it means in, in Latin. Uh, and it means that you get this idea of taking that which is holy, which belongs in the temple, dragging it out, and putting it in a context, where, in a context that is unholy. Uh, and that's what God is saying here that we do with His name when we use it to swear false oaths. We're taking that which is holy, which deserves honor, which ought to be treated with reverence, and we're throwing it about uh, irreverently, uh, treating it as something that is common and unholy. 
Now, when we think of this uh, swearing of false oaths, there's a couple different kinds that would be in view here, uh, namely false promises and false testimony. Both of those are are sealed by oaths, whether it's a promise or a statement of truth, and both of those can also be uh, done deceitfully. They can be lies. Uh, Looking at Leviticus 19, there it seems to be speaking especially about false testimony. Uh, So Leviticus 19, verse 12, You shall not swear by my name falsely, and so profane the name of the Lord your God. I am the Lord. Uh, We'll we'll consider this more when we get to the ninth commandment, which has to do with the same issue of bearing false witness. Uh, That was a very very important matter in that day, because they didn't have a lot of the, the tools to ascertain truth that we now use, whether it's cameras or fingerprints, and and so forth. Uh, So one's life could depend on on false testimony. Uh, But the Scriptures also speak a lot about false promises. Uh, You can read about that uh, in Numbers chapter 30. There's a section that has to do with oaths that are made, promises to do something, uh, vows that are made in the name of God. Uh, So vows are, are these promises that we make, we might make them to God directly, or we might make them to someone else in the name of God. But what God is teaching us here is to take those very seriously. If a person makes a promise, a vow, in the name of God, he's obliged to keep it. As Numbers 30, verse 2, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Now, Numbers 30 goes on to uh, sort of delineate this under what circumstances could a vow be broken uh, or dismissed. There are some exceptions. For example, if someone swears a vow to do that which is sinful, the command is not, oh, you made the vow, keep it. The, vow, the, the command is, you shall repent of having made a false uh, or, or made a sinful uh, vow. Now, in our day, we're probably not very accustomed to dealing with vows at all, uh, to making vows, particularly in the name of, of the Lord. But the principle here still remains. If you have made vows, if you have made promises, then for the sake of God's name, keep your vows. In court, the catechism explains, in court also we are to tell the truth. And when you make promises to one another, you are to to tell the truth by keeping those promises. And, And this is true even if you didn't make the promise in God's name, even if you didn't explicitly mention God's name. Here's the thing, as a Christian, you nonetheless bear God's name. In all that you say, in all that you do, you carry God's name with you. So keep your word. Keep your promises. Speak the truth. Something else that Scripture says about this too is we are not to delay in fulfilling our vows. A vow that is needlessly delayed in its fulfillment is regarded by Scripture as a vow that is broken. A vow that's not being kept. Uh, Deuteronomy 23, verse 21, If you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay in fulfilling it. For the Lord your God will surely require it of you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. So you shall be careful to do what is past your lips. For you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. You make the promise, keep the promise, and keep it on time. Do not delay in fulfilling your vow. 
Ecclesiastes 5, verse 4, When you vow a vow to God, do not delay paying it, for He has no pleasure in fools. Therefore, pay what you vow. In other words, delayed vows are broken vows, if they're delayed unnecessarily. Uh, They are a sin that is to be confessed, that is to be repented of. And and even then, if it's still within your power to keep the vow, even if it's many years later, keep your vow. So the command here, uh, the big principle here is, hold the name of God as sacred. Whether you vow a vow in His name, or whether you as a Christian marked by His name make a promise, let the name of God be sacred among you by keeping your word. Even if there's nothing else holy in all the universe, let's let the name of God be holy. With that principle in mind, we can suddenly see how this commandment actually extends into a lot of other areas of the Christian life. Uh, and, uh, and it refers also to other ways that people might abuse, uh, treat as not sacred, the name of God. Uh, maybe the most prominent way today uh, is the way that the name of God can be used as a curse word. People do this all the time, whether it's the word God or Lord or Jesus Christ. Uh, it, it's really striking, isn't it, how, how even unbelievers, those who don't know the Lord, uh, find, find a certain power in using the name of God as a curse word. Uh, they, it, is, it is holy enough to them that they take pleasure in profaning it. Now, those who, who do this, they do it to shock the conscience. That's the point of all cuss words. It's to shock the conscience, taking something uh, obscene or uh, something that is holy and using it in a way that's obscene to shock the conscience. This is why people also do then this, this then with the name of, of God. It, it gives the one who does this some sense of, of power that they can, they can disturb the consci- consciences of, of others. That doesn't mean they are particularly powerful people. It just means that makes them feel that way. This is why cuss words have, have been accurately described as, as strong words that are used by weak people. And, and there's some truth to that. It, it's, it's an abuse of that which is holy. Uh, but the use of God's name in this way is not without consequences. We should not treat this as, oh, the world does it, but as long as we don't do it, it, it doesn't matter. No, it has consequences. When God's name is abused, uh, the the respect and reverence that people have for God uh, will be steadily eroded. Uh, Maybe at first when we hear it, our our consciences are shocked, but if we get used to hearing the name of God abused, uh, eventually we too may be deadened to, to such abuse. And then what was holy to us is now common to us. And that is a great loss for us, uh, for those who hear, and also for our society at large. Uh, the abuse of God's name has resounding effects beyond just the church, but also to the society at large. Uh, because in a society where the name of God is not holy, nothing else is going to be holy either. If God is not holy, nothing will be holy. Uh, and look, is that not the very culture in which we live? Uh, God is not holy to us. And so what is, what is still holy in our culture? Is truth still holy? Uh, is, uh, is honor still regarded as holy? Uh, is sex and marriage regarded as holy? Our children, is human life regarded as holy? Where God is not holy, nothing else will be holy either. Uh, and and that's, here's where we want to then remember again the purpose of these Ten Commandments. Uh, as we saw in the, in the introduction, God has set us free that we might live as a free people. And you're not free in a world where God is not holy. 
If God is not holy to you, then you are a slave to those things which are unholy. Uh, So, to be sure, this commandment exists for God's honor, but what we want to understand is that God's honor is also for our good. It is good for you when God is honored. It is bad for you. It's bad for your soul when God is not honored, particularly by you. So the abuse of God's name, whether it's by cursing or profanity or false oaths or false testimony, ought to be to us as a great offense. That kind of thing has no place on our lips. And while we're on this point, that kind of thing, the abuse of God's name, also has no place in our homes. It really does not belong in our homes. It has no place in our entertainment. You know, there are better things that we can do with our lives, for one thing, than, than sit and watch the name of God being profaned. Uh, but especially in this respect, we are to be careful to honor the name of God. And we want to be mindful of our children. And here I don't just mean what our children will take in as entertainment, but even more importantly, what do your children see you taking in as entertainment? That's going to have an effect on them. Do, do, do not assume that your children won't see through the hypocrisy of you teaching them on the one hand that God's name is holy and not to be abused, but on the other hand, quite free and willing to listen to things, uh, to enjoy entertainment where God's name is being abused. Your children will see through that. Your actions here will speak louder than your words. So parents, let's show some integrity in this respect. Let's not let the name of God be dishonored in our homes. If necessary, that might mean we have to make some sacrifices in our entertainment. Christians have probably made bigger sacrifices uh, in the past. These are things that we should be glad to give up if it's for the sake of God's name. Uh, The Catechism reminds us uh, here as well that God is angry not just with those who who do the abusing of His name, uh, but even with those who don't prevent it and forbid it as, as much as they can. Entertainment in our homes, that would be a place where we can prevent and forbid it. There are other places that may be more challenging. For example, uh, in in school, if it's a Christian school, uh, then then we can still somewhat ensure to the best of our ability that that the name of God is not abused. Uh, If it's a workplace as well that's run by Christian owners, you you can put some standards in place there. Uh, Even in our secular culture, there are still means to to do that, to protect the honor that's paid to to religion. Uh, In a non-Christian school or a non-Christian workplace, it is is more difficult. It takes wisdom to know when to speak, when to be silent. And this is why the Catechism also then speaks of preventing and forbidding as much as we can. Uh, You might not always be able to prevent it, but even then you can certainly, for your part, ensure that you take no part in it. That, that you show this, this does not give you pleasure, nor does it uh, pass by you without offense. Uh, we, can, we can make it clear pretty easily what things we find funny uh, and what things we don't. As, as, of course, as we do that, we, we think of the Apostle Peter's words here uh, in our witness towards unbelievers. We do everything with, with gentleness and respect. We, we, it's not that we get upset and show how offended we can get. We, we want to do that with gentleness and respect, but we want to show the name of God is holy to us. Now, while we're on this point as well, we, we might uh, take a moment to think about, what about other curse words? And besides the abuse of God's name, what about other curse words or obscenities? 
This commandment doesn't deal directly here with, with that matter, uh, but since it does concern the way in which we speak, uh, that, that we are to speak in a way that gives glory to the name of God, there are implications there for, for the rest of our speech as well. Here, here's the principle. If we are indeed the children of God in this world, uh, in a sinful and perverse world, our speech ought to reflect the character of God. Now, Colossians 4, verse 6, Let your speech always be gracious, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how you ought to answer each person. And this image of, of salt, it sort of harkens back to the teaching of the Lord Jesus, doesn't it? You are the salt of the earth. Uh, you are that which gives life flavor and makes life beautiful. You are that which is good in this world. You are to be the salt of the earth, and your speech, therefore, ought to show that. Uh, Proverbs 10, uh, verse 20 speaks in a similar manner. The tongue of the righteous is choice silver. The heart of the wicked is of little worth. Or or Ephesians 5, verse 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Now God God doesn't include in the Bible a list of forbidden words. That's not how uh, the law of God operates, and it would have been pointless anyways because words you know change their meaning over over time with culture and, and so forth. But the principle here remains: what proceeds from our mouth is a sure indication of what lives within our hearts. If a mouth pours forth filth, that's a pretty sure indication that the heart is full of filth. If that's how we talk. It's, a, it's an indication of the condition of our hearts. And in that case, that's something that we ought to be bringing before God in repentance and turning away from filthy talk. It has no place on, in the heart nor less in the mouth of a Christian. That's not, that's not who we are. Since we are then God's image bearers in the world, we're, we're set apart as a people of, of purity. We look like our Father, or at least we, we ought to. Now, finally, before we close... There is yet one more abuse of God's name that we ought to pay attention to, uh, that God's Word actually speaks quite a lot about. And it's the matter of speaking falsely in God's name. In some cases, this is very obvious, very explicit, uh, with, with, for example, false prophets claiming to speak on behalf of God, uh, speaking with God's authority, but speaking that which God has not commanded. Scripture speaks often and and very severely uh, about such abuse of God's name. Old Testament and New Testament, uh, such a thing is clearly condemned. Uh, but the problem of, uh, of false prophets was not just a problem of long ago. It's not just a problem of, of biblical times that we don't deal with anymore. Uh, there are still today countless so-called uh, pastors, or uh, sometimes they call themselves apostles, who claim to speak in God's name, but are speaking things that God has not said. They're speaking lies. And that we ought to also regard as a very serious offense. It's not just bad theology. It's not just bad doctrine. It's the abuse of God's name that God teaches us we are to take very seriously. You might think here, just to give an example of the the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, where, where promises are made in God's name that God himself has not promised. That's a lie, and it's an abuse of God's name. 
I just, uh, for example, in Brazil, uh, the the spread of of, of that gospel, the, the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, uh, has brought in Brazil tremendous dishonor to the name of God. Uh, many pastors will proclaim uh, in the name of God that if you give uh, so much to my ministry, God is going to give you fourfold back or or tenfold back. It's a promise made in the name of God, and uh, many people have run into poverty uh, because they believed that promise. That is uh, not just a lie. It's an abuse of God's holy name. It's something God teaches us we take very, very seriously. Uh, But that same respect then for the name of God should also make us very cautious about even more subtle abuses of God's name in ways that might sound more pious or more innocent. Uh, In the last 30 years, it's been noted uh, that it it has become commonplace to use phrases like, God told me this, or God led me to do this, Uh, and there's, there may be a, a good desire behind that, uh, that, that people want to show that their relationship with God is, is living and active, that, that there's a real relationship there, that God dwells in us with His Spirit, and, and in that sense does lead us uh, in, in that way. Uh, so it's, it may not be that there's a wrong desire here, but there may also be other desires behind this trend that are perhaps more subtle and perhaps less honorable. Uh, See, by saying, God told me this, or God led me to do this, or is leading me to do this, what we're doing is we're claiming for our opinions or our inclinations uh, or our desires, we're claiming the authority of God behind them. And we might feel those convictions very sincerely. We might truly believe that God is leading us to do that. But we're also, by saying, God tells me this, we make ourselves immune from criticism, don't we? We say, you, you can't question what I feel inclined to do because God is leading me to do it. And we make ourselves immune from wise counsel that might actually lead us in a different direction. Uh, we, we, we make ourselves immune from fair questions about our, our motives. And that is not only unwise, but it demonstrates a low regard for God's holiness and the honor of God's name. And this is something that Christians should be cautious around and stay away from. And it's one thing to say, you know, I feel God is leading me to do this, or I sense that this might be God's will for me. Uh, And there, you you can say that and still be open to questioning, open to criticism, open to to listening to others who might take you in a different direction. Uh, Likewise, we might say, you know, with humility, uh, here's what I think I understand from God's word. But it is another thing and something that we should be very wary of to claim that the inclination of my heart or some word or phrase that that crossed my mind is the word and the voice of God. It might not be. Uh, Even our consciences can be wrong. Scripture does not say that your conscience is uh, is infallible. We ought to be humble here. Uh, we, we ought to let God's name be holy. That's the principle, right? That God's name would be holy above everything else. Again, there can be a legitimate concern that leads to this kind of thing happening. A, a concern that if, if we restrict God's word simply to what, what was written in Scripture long ago, then, then don't we just have a dead religion based on a book that was completed many years uh, before? Uh, is that really a, a living religion uh, or a living relationship with God? But that's not how God speaks of God's word, is it? 
As the Scriptures themselves say, the Word of God is living even today. It is active. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It's capable of discerning between the thoughts and intentions of the heart. Now, when Christians read the Word of God or when they speak the Word of God to one another, uh, making every effort also to understand its, its meaning uh, and its intention, not just applying our own meaning to it, uh, if we're interpreting Scripture also in light of Scripture, the Spirit works through the Word in a way that is living and active today. Uh, and when we do that, we find that our relationship is far greater. Our relationship with God is far better uh, and, most importantly, is true and is real, uh, not merely attaching God's name to, to the thoughts or impulses of, of our minds. It is not somehow less spiritual to insist uh, on the Word of God as our only and our ultimate authority. Uh, the Word of God is our measure for what God wants us to know and who God wants us to be. Uh, we may have a vision. We may have a dream. We may have an impulse where we think God might be leading us to do something. And we can talk about those things cautiously with one another, but we should be very, very careful in suggesting that that is, is the Word of God. And this also applies to how we use God's Word. And it matters, it matters to understand what God's Word actually means. It matters to, to read God's Word in context. It's not as though uh, just speaking words that happen to come from Scripture ha- has somehow power uh, in itself. No, the power is in the transforming truth that the Word declares. And, and yes, sometimes that takes, that takes work. Take study. We work our way through God's Word. We desire to understand it. Uh, it takes work uh, in, in community as well. Uh, the communion of saints that have gone before us, who've poured their lives into understanding and explaining the Word and the community in which we find ourselves, listening to each other with humility. That's how you understand the Word of God. There's a richness there in, in coming together to understand God's Word better uh, than we could have understood it by ourselves. Uh, there's an increasing tendency related to this abuse of God's name uh, to, to do this with Scripture, to take a single verse out of Scripture, out of context, and, and to apply it in a way that has little regard for, for its actual meaning. Uh, for example, uh, the, the phrase from Philippians 4, verse, uh, I believe, 8, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, uh, has been used to, to justify almost any and all uh, desires that, that people might have. Uh, some have applied it to their, their desire to, to achieve certain financial goals or relational goals. Now, there's one particular movie, maybe you've seen it, The uh, Soul Surfer, uh, where this, this surfer uses that verse to, to, uh, to empower herself to achieve uh, winning a competition, a surfing competition. Is that what God's Word meant? No, it's an abuse of, of God's Word. It, it, just because the words come from Scripture does not make them powerful and true in the way that you're using it. Understand what God's Word means. That's how we show our reverence for the God who has spoken through His Word. In a way, this, this tendency is uh, reflective of our larger, uh, our larger postmodern culture where meaning and, and identity is up to the individual uh, to, to decide. You see that in modern art, for example, where it means what you want it to mean. We ought not to do that with, with the Word of God. It, it doesn't function that way, and if it does, it ceases to be the light that illuminates our path, and it becomes nothing but a reflection of, of the darkness of our own minds and our own desires. 
So this whole commandment then, it's about honoring the name of God in all these different practical ways. In the way we make our, our oaths and vows, in the way that we use His name in our speech, in the way we talk about Him, and also, yes, in the reverence that we have for His Word. As we think about that, then we can see more, more clearly the positive side of the commandment here. Uh, it's not as, as the Jews of old believed that you should just stop using God's name altogether. You know, God teaches us we ought to. We have the privilege of, of using His name, but we do that with fear and reverence. The Catechism mentions several, uh, several examples of ways, instances in which we might do so. In the courtroom, uh, it is a good thing, it's an honorable thing uh, to use the name of God when you take your vows. It declares to the world, this is the arbitrator of truth. This is the one who knows uh, whether I'm speaking the truth or not. It's a, it's a witness the world needs to hear. In the way that we speak about him as well, we, we may, we should use his name. Uh, but we do that with, with reverence. Uh, in our prayers to him, when we call upon him. Uh, likewise, when we finish our prayers in Jesus' name, uh, we, we do that with reverence and, and honor. Uh, and then uh, the Catechism also mentions the way we sing his praises. That's what we gather on, on Sunday to do, to sing God's praises. Let that too be done with reverence, that God's name would be lifted up. So God has given us permission to use His name, and we should see that as a gift because God is jealous for His name. If He gives His name to us, He gives it for our good. He says, I stand behind my name, which I have given to you. In fact, God saves us and is committed to us precisely for that reason. He has set His name upon us and will not let go of those who belong to Him, who bear His name on their foreheads. So let's treasure that name and let's hallow it. Let's honor it, honoring him above everything and everyone else. Amen. Let's respond to God's word by singing from hymn 5, stanzas 1 and 4.